namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang damang sanghang namasami So uh, um, I'm reminded by this little piece of paper at my right that the title for tonight's talk is Renunciation. <laughs> I was trying to remember on the way here, but uh, my brain had renounced it. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, what I'll, I'll uh, endeavor to do is to reflect on that theme uh, in a few ways uh, to begin the evening and then uh, open things up for some uh, discussion and questions uh, later on. The, um, one of the, the most inspiring passages that, uh, that from, from myself in the... Uh, in the Theravada Buddhist scriptures, in the Pali Canon, is uh, a discourse called the, uh, the Pabhaja Sutta. It's uh, some verses in the collection called the Sutta Nipata. And it describes the Buddha's own going forth from the, the household life and his pursuit of enlightenment. And it, the, the discourse describes his, um, his leaving uh, the uh, the palace and his endeavor to set out onto the, the spiritual the path of spiritual exploration to uh, to discover the truth and um, the uh, the passage that comes to mind is where he's uh, uh, adopted the life of a, a wandering mendicant he's cut off his hair and uh, um, put on the the the, uh, the robe of a of a wanderer of a summoner and then. Uh, Passing through the the uh, the town of Rajagaha, the city of Rajagaha, which is the capital of Magadha, um, one of the main countries of the Ganges Valley in India at that time, and the young king Bimbisara spots him uh, walking through the the streets from the palace window, and Bimbisara is really struck by this you know, extraordinary figure. The Buddha was uh, as a bodhisattva, uh, and as a, a Buddha, he was a about you know, he was a, a big guy, well over, uh, well over six foot, maybe six foot four, six foot six. It was a, out of the warrior noble caste, and um, and even before his enlightenment, he obviously had some uh, uh, a great a great sense of of dignity, of uh, of poise. And Bimbisara just saw this this wanderer walking down the street, this this tall, uh, dignified. Being and thought, well, who is this? You know, wh- where does he come from? This is no ordinary spiritual seeker. Uh, I wonder who that can be. And so that he sends out a messenger, uh, uh, one of his his uh, palace uh, uh, guards, to go and follow this wanderer and say, go follow him, find out where he goes, where he's staying, find out who he is, what kind of spiritual practice he does. I want to know more about this guy. And so the the uh, the minister, the courtier, follows him and uh, tracks him back to a, after his arms round through the city, tracks him to a cave up on the one of the local hills, and um, 
follows him there and then goes back to the king. And the king uh, makes his way out to, this, out to this mountain, to this cave, and then um, approaches the, the, the bodhisattva. So this is, he's only just left the home life. He hasn't even really entered upon any kind of <coughs> spiritual practice. He just has the, the aspiration to, to learn, to study. And um, the, uh, the king says to him, you know, you are no ordinary person. I can tell by your demeanor, by your, the, the way you carry yourself, your dignity, that you are a great warrior noble. Please you know, help me run my kingdom. You know, please uh, lead my army. <laughs> you know, I'll offer you anything that you want. You can have you know, any of the riches or, or possessions, anything that I can offer you, but please, you know, I want you on my team. And so the Buddha says, uh, or the Bodhisattva at that time says, um, declines the offer, having just given up his own kingdom, <laughs> and renounced, renounced his own military life, and, uh, and says, uh, I have, the, and the verse that comes to mind is that I have seen the, uh, the peril, the, the downside of the pursuit of sense pleasure, and I have seen the bliss of renunciation. Therefore, um, your great king, I decline your offer. Therefore, I choose to go on into the struggle. This is where my heart finds joy. This is where I find delight. And then uh, the king says, well, when, you've, when you reach the end of your journey, when you, you reach your goal, please come back and see me. <laughs> and then uh, as the story went, then the, in fact that, that's exactly what happened and Bimbisara became a, a great uh, disciple, devotee and supporter of the Buddha and the Sangha for, for many decades. <coughs> but that, that one little verse is what really came to mind on the, the theme of renunciation. That um, uh, it really encapsulates that. Having seen the, the downside, having seen the, the peril in the pursuit of, of sensual pleasure, in trying to invest in, in happiness in, through the sensory world, having seen basically that that doesn't work in terms of providing a permanent, stable happiness, and having seen the bliss of renunciation, then uh, my heart turns towards that. That's the, the, the heart recognizes this is the way to go, to find, to find bliss. Now we don't really, don't often associate the words renunciation with bliss, do we? <laughs> Our culture does not steer us in that direction. You know, follow your bliss is uh, when Joseph Campbell came up with that slogan, which one now sees on bumper stickers and other places, follow your bliss, we don't immediately say, yes, give up everything. At least most people don't make that kind of connection. So um, I thought I would uh, uh, look a little bit at that, that. How can that be that renunciation and, and joy and delight and, and bliss could possibly be uh, connected with each other? And maybe also you're thinking, well, he was unenlightened at the time that he made that statement. <laughs> you know, he was only a bodhisattva. Maybe as soon as he was a Buddha, he kind of figured out he had something wrong there and kind of rejigged his understanding. But uh, no. <laughs> It stayed in place, and that. Um, but it's also a fact that the the Buddha didn't worship hardship for its own ends, and so um, that uh, he um, uh, he developed a practice of renunciation, and, and he um, encouraged that as a, a kind of a form of practice. But he didn't worship you know, hardship for its own ends. So. Just to, um, to 
to talk a little bit about those, those themes. As just earlier today, we were talking about um, the, uh, or maybe uh, actually it was in a, a discussion we had yesterday with some people asking about uh, ascetic practices. And that um, in the time of the Buddha, there were many other different spiritual traditions. And some of them believed that if you were experiencing hardship, you were burning off bad karma. And so that the more hardship that you experienced, then the more bad karma you burnt off. So the more painful it was, you know, the, the, the more progress you were making. And the Buddha pointed uh, at that as being a you know, very wrong understanding. And uh, what he, uh, he outlined was, he said, if you, there, there are five reasons why one might take upon ascetic practices or, or say, a, a life of, of um, say, conscious simplicity. Uh, deliberately uh, going without in some way. said, if you're doing it uh, because of the belief that by experiencing hardship you're burning up bad karma, that's, that's, you know, that's one reason. If you're doing it because you think that you're, you're making good karma by experiencing hardship, then that's, that's another reason. If you're doing it because people will be impressed and that uh, you know, if you're a wandering seeker or a, a teacher, then the more ascetic you are, the more you, you kind of win votes and, and impress the, the, the many folk. Or if it's because everybody else are, you know, in your community does that, so you think, well, I better do it because everyone else is doing it, and to stay, uh, sort of, keep up with the, the other guys, then uh, uh, there's the fourth reason. The fifth reason is simply for the sake of simplicity. He said, of all those five reasons, only the fifth is worthwhile. All the, uh, the first four are all missing the point and are, are, are wasteful. So that renunciation is, is based on, uh, say, a recognition of the, the usefulness of simplicity. And that fundamentally what, what we find is that um, renunciation is not to do with trying to make life harder for ourselves, but trying to make it more easy. And I think all of us have experienced or can see around us that if we've, if we've learned to be content, if we've learned to be at ease with, uh, with whatever comes, with, uh, if things are, um, are um, say, if we are at ease with whatever life presents with us, then there's a certain, you know, if we're content with whatever we've got, then there's a certain... Um, Say lack of anxiety, there's a certain settledness, a certain ease in our lives. If we are, say, very dependent on having a, a whole range of comforts at our disposal, if we're very used to a, an extremely high standard of living, then as soon as things start to wobble a little bit, you know, the power supply dips. <gasps> what are we going to do? Or that the, uh, something comes back from the, um, you know, from the laundry and there's a smudge on one corner of your tablecloth. <gasps> or, at the, uh, or you go to a restaurant and the corner of one of your leaves of lettuce is a little bit brown. <gasps> you know, this is, we, we suffer very easily because of a, a, a high standard. So the Buddha pointed to the quality of contentment and being a, a, at ease with whatever we've got as being uh, the, a, a way of of, of establishing peacefulness and, and ease in life, of being, uh, of finding joy. The, um, 
a number of years ago, the um, in Thailand, this was in the 50s and 60s, when Thailand was very much a third world nation, but aspired greatly towards material progress, the, there was a, uh, a particularly <laughs> uh, dictatorial government in, installed at the time, or had taken power at the time, and they issued explicit instructions to the, the monastics order to, uh, to stop teaching about contentment. In Pali, the word uh, for contentment is san santusat santusati. Uh, one who is content is a santusako. And so they literally called in the, the elders and the, the, sort of the, the senior people of the order and said, okay, from now on, contentment is off. We need people to be restless consumers. And this is not, this is not a kind of black comedy I'm talking about. This, is, this actually happened. And monks who, who disobeyed and who, and, uh, who um, didn't go along with that, that uh, diktat were some, some were jailed, some were accused of being communists, some were disrobed because of teaching contentment. Because the government saw that, you know, that you've got to, uh, to get to develop the economy, you've got to consume a lot and not be content with what you've got. And they saw that um, creating that, that appetite for consumption um, it was going to boost the economy, and that uh, these particular spiritual teachings went counter to it. So there were a few characters, like Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who some of you might have heard of, who just said, no. <laughs> and they carried enough clout to go sort of fake uh, nose to nose, both with the religious authorities and the political authorities, and just said, no, this is, this is a, a totally offensive to Buddha Dharma, and do you really think the Buddha was deluded in telling us that to practice contentment is going to be a way to, to, for happiness. You know, are you telling me that the Prime Minister is wiser than the Buddha? So that um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa had enough chutzpah to, to carry it off, and he had enough of a, a good reputation to be able to, to um, carry it through. So he ended up not being jailed, but there were some serious debates, and he was really sort of on the line for a while. But uh, it's amazing. But, uh, but you know, we can see that much of our, of our culture here in the West is, is built in the same way. We're not encouraged to be content. Right? <laughs> there was a wonderful advert for American Express um, I saw uh, a few years ago. Which, I mean, American adverts, I'm, I know I'm a Brit and I don't want to cast aspersions on American culture, but there was this American advertising is amazingly direct. It doesn't employ a lot of subtlety. Um, and there was this advert for American Express which said, take the waiting out of wanting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of wonderfully bald. <laughs> Get it now. You, know, you can have now. And so that we're steer the, the culture does not steer us towards renunciation. You don't have an advert which says, Basically, you don't really need this, <laughs> but if you, you know, if you, if you are, if you are sort of compelled to acquire something, you, this might be this, this might be an object that you <laughs> could possibly find a use for, or might not clutter your home up too much. You know, they don't say that, do they? They say you need me now. Your life is incomplete without this particular program, this particular object, this particular uh, change of appearance, or whatever. You need this, and when you get this, then you are promised happiness.
So the point of renunciation and the practices of renunciation that the Buddha encouraged are basically to make us strong. They're enabled to us to, to be robust. And that um, he wasn't trying to put down sense pleasure or, or, the, or put down enjoyment of, uh, or appreciation for, for nature and, and for life or for the beautiful, but just saying what, if, we f- if we become addicted to, to comfort, addicted to the pleasurable, uh, we make ourselves weak. And the tiniest little things, you know, li- you know literally, you know, uh, uh, a brown corner of a piece of lettuce can put us into a frenzy. You know, or at a, um, the very fact that we now own a, a BMW means that, that when it gets scratched, we suffer a lot more than when we had that, that cr- you know, clunky old Toyota. Right? <laughs> I, <laughs> I just reminded of a... I was g- talking along these lines. There was a couple of... Um, when I was in England, uh, um, um, Monastery Amravati, there in England, and I was talking along these lines, and, and I'd noticed that these to a, a couple of, of young Thai women who'd come to visit that morning. And in Thailand, the, owner, uh, the ownership of a Mercedes-Benz is like the, uh, the ultimate happiness. It's like the achievement. You have arrived at completion. It's like arahantship for the, <laughs> for the average Thai person. It means like your life is now complete because you got a Mercedes. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It really does hold that place in society. So I noticed that these two, these two young women had pulled up in this bright red, sort of cherry red, uh, big old Mercedes. And so I was talking along these, these lines, and I said, well, say, for example, you, know, you park your, your, you know, your, your, here you are, you've come to England, and you've, you've worked really hard, you've got through your degrees, you get, you know, you get these good jobs, uh, you make a certain amount of money, you get, a, you get a bit of credit, and you go out and you buy a Mercedes, and you stand in front of the car, click, click, send the pictures back home, Mom, we made it! Look at this, you know, here's me and my sister, and we, we, made, the, we made the Mercedes. And ev- make everyone at home happy. So, you know, your motivation is, is, is quite reasonable, but then you get very identified with this beautiful thing that you've now got. So then, you're very happy, and this, this, this uh, object is something that uh, is deeply yours, and you're deeply identified with, and you're deeply happy about. Then, it just so happens that you, know, you park it outside your home and, and you live across the way from a pub and then people come out of the pub and they see a nice big red Mercedes and they think, I am offended by this, this, object, this rich person's object, out come the car keys, and uh, scrape along the side of the Mercedes and then what before was a source of immense happiness and joy to you now becomes a source of uh, incredible irritation and rage. How could they do that? They ruined my car, they scratched the payment, this is going to cost me a fortune to mend it. You know, people... And I was waxing lyrically along these lines, and then one of the the women started giggling, and the other woman started going going a bit uh, red in the the face. And as I was waxing lyrically further, (laughs) the other one actually keeled over on her side. And, you know, Thai, Thai people are generally pretty restrained around monks, and this one had completely lost, she totally lost her, her grip. <laughs> she was just lying on the floor of the, of the uh, meeting hall, just in a, fi- in a fit of giggles. And so eventually I realized, this is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> this is not normal. And the other one was looking even more red-faced than before. So, so I said, uh, um, what's the matter? And finally she sort of picked herself up and and said, well, actually, this happened last night. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not claiming psychic powers or anything. It's, she said, this happened last night, and the whole journey up here, you know, she was like e- cursing and swearing, and all the things she was going to do to this person who scratched the, you know, scratched the car, and, <laughs> and so, you know, it's exactly as we say that we, you know, that if we hadn't owned the, that precious and beautiful object, if we hadn't claimed it, then we wouldn't create the suffering and all the anger, anger resentment, and bitterness because of it being harmed. So that we see that that the the problem. Uh, is that sense of uh, it's not having useful or beautiful things around but it's the sense of ownership it's the ownership that is the the main problem so that when we talk about renunciation it's not to do with say condemning beautiful things or or, or condemning the the ownership of of wealth or or being around beautiful objects I mean I could say if I was really into renunciation you know take one look at this building like well, it was kind of bearable before they fixed it up, but it's way too nice now. I can't go in there. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But um, I mean, if you are really attached to the idea of you know beautiful things are bad, then then that's what would be the the conclusion. But really, the point is that it, it's. It's that sense of, uh, of dependency or addiction or to, to, to pleasant and beautiful things and the sense of ownership. And that renunciation is really trying to help us discover that quality in us, that place in our heart where um, we know that we don't really own anything. You know, as, as, um, as the, uh, one of the, the great uh, acharyas of our age uh, Mr. Robert Zimmerman once said, you know, if you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. <laughs> right? You're invisible. You have no secrets to conceal. How does it feel? <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, he was absolutely right. Or, or uh, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Being a kind of, somewhat, something of a, a you know, the, uh, baby boomer crowd in here will recognize some of these lines. <laughs> and those of you who are, who are young for that, you probably heard the, the tunes as well. When we have nothing to lose, then there's a sense of, of freedom. There's, a, a, there's ease. There's another um, passage from the suttas that I'm, I, I'm reminded of where when the, the, uh, the Buddha renounced his kingdom as the crown prince, and left the home life, then um, he also a whole bunch of other Sakyan uh, princes eventually uh, um, became ordained as monks after him. But when his father died, then for a, wa- for a time the kingdom was inherited by his, one of his cousins called Bhagu. Uh, but eventually Bhagu left the, the, the palace life and, and became a monk as well. Um, he kind of gave up the throne and handed it on to someone else. So sometime later, uh, when he was a monk, then um, uh, the other monks saw uh, the venerable Bhagu kind of wandering around in the, in the, the forest saying, Oh bliss! Oh bliss! <laughs> kind of wandering around and kind of looking into space and, and they thought, Oh dear, he's really lost it. What's wrong with him? Said, oh bliss! Oh bliss! They thought, well, he must be missing the palace life and all, you know, his beautiful things and all the jewelry and the fine clothes and his harem and the whole, uh, you know, 
five banquets a day. You know, poor guy, he's sort of missing this blissful life and he's wandering around in this grief-stricken state. You know, they're imagining what it was like and all the stuff he's given up. And so they go to the Buddha and say, well, you know, Venerable Bhagu, you know, he's really, he's really suffering and, uh, and he keeps missing his life in the palace. He keeps wandering around saying, oh bliss, oh bliss. And um, maybe it would be, be a good idea if you had a talk with him. And so the Buddha says, okay, well, you know, bring him here. <laughs> so they invite uh, Bhagu to come and, and meet the Buddha. And the Buddha says, is it, is it true that you're wandering about the forest saying, oh bliss, oh bliss? He says, yes, it's true. And he said, well, what's the reason why you're, you're saying this? Because your, your fellows, your brothers in the holy life, think that it's because you're discontent and that you want to go back to the, you know, to the, the, the life of the palace and your beautiful furnishings and your lovely clothes and the food and the harem and the whole business. He says, oh no, 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 it's not that at all. He says, when I was the king, when I was the king, I had a personal bodyguard around me. I had these, these, uh, this armed guard around me, you know, for, you know, all the time, just around my throne. Around the, the, the throne room, there was another uh, wall of armed guards. Around the edges of the palace, there was another layer of armed guards. Outside the palace walls, there was yet another layer of armed guards. And still, all day, every day, I felt af afraid of my life. Every mouthful of food I had, I was worried that it was poisoned. I didn't know who was going to attack me, who was going to betray me, who was going to try and assassinate me. So, even though I appeared to have everything, all day long I was miserable and lived in fear. Now, all I've got is my robes and a, and a little hut which is a, a shelter for the night. And if I get given food in my arms bowl, I get that to eat. But you know, uh, that's the only possessions I have, is my robes and my bowl and, and uh, my hut. So that's why uh, I go around saying, oh bliss, oh bliss, because now I'm not in fear of my life and, and that I'm not afraid anyone's going to attack me and nobody can take anything away from me. Even if, if they want my robes and my bowl, they can have it. <laughs> so I'm at ease. That's why I'm going around saying, oh bliss, oh bliss. So, um, in this respect, it's, it's helpful to, to uh, say, recognize in a way that when we use the word renunciation, it's actually the wrong word. Because the English term renunciation it implies a state of fullness which has now been diminished. That I, have, I had this thing, or this was mine, I'm now going without it. So like I'm renouncing um, food, I'm renouncing eating in the evening, or I'm renouncing um, sexual activity, or I'm renouncing jewelry, or I'm renouncing um, a, 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 a big house to live in a smaller one. But uh, the word, the Pali word nekama, which is what we translate as renunciation, doesn't really have that connotation of, of going without. It doesn't mean that at all. It's more like a, a, um, a, a it has the meaning of ease with simplicity, or, or, or contentment with, with what, is, what is simple. So that, and there really isn't an English word which corresponds to nekama, because we, we think of uh, renunciation as an intrinsically <coughs> diminished state, like it's sort of, yeah, you tough it out, you go, it's, it's the, the Lenten season, you go without, you know, you, this or that or that, you give up something, something that you really want, 
and that you know you by rights normally have or should have, and then as soon as the the, the renunciation period is over, then you you know you, you get it back. But it's not that quality at all that we're aiming at. So that what renunciation or what we call nikama is based on is the fundamental, from the Buddhist perspective, the already existent fact of non-ownership. In a way it's based around the insight into selflessness, anatta, that actually we can't own anything anyway. That by saying, I renounce um, you know, uh, my, I renounce ownership of, of possessions, or I announce uh, you know, this or that, what we're, what we're recognizing is actually it's already not mine. Like I was saying, the point of renunciation is not, say, refusing the beautiful or the delicious or the, or the, the luxurious. It's not re- refusing to, um, uh, to be in the presence of, of comfort, but the sense of, of ownership is the problem. So that we recognize, well, actually, you know, even these robes are not really mine. You know, this, uh, this bag is not mine. This body isn't mine. You know, the, I'm presuming that you're all somewhat familiar with Buddhist teachings on, on anatta, on selflessness, that in essence, you know, we cannot really own anything. That nothing is truly and completely ours. We, there's nothing that, that we can keep. I mean, you might, th- I, I don't know how many of you came, in, came here in your, uh, your cars. How many people came here in, in your own car? <coughs> is it still there? <laughs> is it still your car? Or is it now somebody else's? The car that I came in, you know, <laughs> is it still there? Or has somebody else adopted ownership and <laughs> transferred the title, you know, while we're not looking? You know? We don't know. You know, our homes. You know, how many people ha- own, how many of you own your own home? Is it still there? <laughs> you come back to this little pile of ashes and a few burnt sticks and say, ah, who knows? You know, that uh, the sense of ownership is, is about a human agreement. Or if suddenly we're struck by some kind of uh, wonderful, um, one of those uh, sensory, the, the ailments of, the, of, the, of our neurosystem, in, like he described in Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, suddenly, boom, and uh, the sense of ownership is switched off in us, suddenly, click, and it's, uh, psychologically, it's, we're incapable of owning anything. We forget who we are, what we are, what belongs to us. Oh, my car? What does my mean? Oh. We begin to see that, that uh, in essence, we, a sense of ownership or control, um, the ownership of, of our possessions, of our body, all of that is, is a, has a relative truth. It doesn't have an absolute truth. It can't have. So when we talk about renunciation, it's recognizing that intrinsic, intrinsic relative nature of owning anything. That actually nothing is really ours. And so that we're so getting our minds around that. Um, that it's a, um, it doesn't really belong to us. And so that then by, by recognizing that, we're cutting the, the habits of dependency, of expectation, of presumption, and that um, we are able to, to be more at ease with it. Uh, now, many years ago, when I was 
uh, a young novice in Thailand, I remember sort of meeting this principal for the first time. It was a, a monk was trying to fix one of these old Singer sewing machines. We sew all our own robes and such like. And he was trying to fix this sewing machine. And uh, he was, had this screwdriver, but he was sort of levering on this, this plate to try and get the, get the, uh, the, the metal plate up to, to, to fix the innards of the sewing machine. And I was sort of watching him and getting kind of involved in the effort to try and do this. And suddenly, the screwdriver snapped. And I, my first thought was, oh, damn. It broke. You know, it failed us. And, but as, you know, I, I thought, as I thought, damn, he said, Anicca, impermanent. <laughs> it was like first thought was, oh, this was always an impermanent screwdriver. You know, I thought it was a screwdriver that was letting me down. <laughs> he knew that it was just a, it was just nature screwdrivering for a while, <laughs> and then it stopped screwdrivering, and that was it. It just it had reached its end, and that was how it was. So I suffered. He didn't, and he was the one who was working on it, not me. So, in this effort to, say, um, come from this place of, of recognizing this sort of basic uh, non-ownership, um, this is what, uh, like the way that we relate to our possessions, the way we relate to our, our body, our health, the people around us, the more that we really re recognize it's not really ours, we break that sense of dependency. Now, the Buddha did establish some structures um, some kind of ways of training to help lead us to that. So, what we call renunciate practices. So, um, and this is, those of you who are familiar with what's called the eight precepts, uh, that within the eight precepts, there's, uh, to get a little bit technical, there are some precepts which are called moral or natural precepts. Um, I always get these mixed up, which are uh, panyati sila, and then that which is uh, our renunciant precepts, which are to, which are not intrinsically moral precepts, which are are standards that you can use to sort of sharpen your your practice, and they're called pakati sila, panyati and pakati. So a panyati sila would be the like the precepts against taking life. So that's an intrinsic moral precept that's like basic to the human condition, intrinsic in the human condition. If, if I deliberately take life of anything, it's going to hurt me as well as it's going to hurt the other creature. Whereas, so that's like intrinsic in the natural order. Uh, any, in any situation, that, that applies. Uh, uh, a prescribed sila is like, if, is like giving up eating in the evening. So there's not, if I decide to, to eat and have something to eat in the evening, that's and it uh, goes against the ethic of giving up the, the, the eating in the evening. It's not intrinsically immoral, right? So in the eight precepts, you have four that are of the, uh, the moral type and four which are of the renunciate type. So that um, it's important to recognize that, that the, uh, the, the moral precepts are, are sort of part of the natural order. The others are just to help sharpen the, 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 the qualities of, of wisdom and insight and to help develop this robustness uh, within, our, within us, enable us to, to live more easily 
without creating suffering and difficulty. So just to quickly whip through the eight precepts to give the outline, the first one is the precept against taking life, the second one is against taking uh, what is not given, the third one is the precept of celibacy, not engaging in any kind of uh, sexual activity, uh, the fourth one is the precept against uh, false or harmful speech. The fifth one is against using intoxicants. The sixth one is uh, uh, the precept not to take any food between midday and dawn of the next day. The seventh one is the Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana, which is the no fun precept. <laughs> to abstain from entertainment, beautification and adornment. There's all sorts of detail that goes into that, but entertainment, beautification and adornment. And then the eighth one is to refrain from using a high or luxurious sleeping place, which is basically a precept against uh, not uh, overindulging in sleep. So of those eight, um, the third one, uh, that on, of celibacy, and then the last three, are the renunciant precepts. And in the normal recension of the five precepts, which you're probably m more familiar with, the third one gets changed to refraining from sexual misconduct. So the eight precepts that gets kind of cranked up a, or down a few notches, depending on <laughs> how you look at it. But it's, uh, it's strengthened to uh, an abstention from sexual activity altogether. So just talking about those four, uh, I'll, I'll explore those. Um, as, as renunciant precepts. But uh, in Buddhist countries, uh, what you find, particularly in the Theravada world, is that um, the use of the eight precepts is like the, the, the skeleton of uh, the renunciate life or the monastic form. So anyone who comes and stays in a monastery is expected to live according to those eight precepts. Pretty much. Um, and so that uh, I thought it might be interesting to find out, of, to, to let you know, how the Buddha established those eight precepts. And uh, there's a, a beautiful discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the Book of the Eights. It's called the Upposita Sutta. And the Upposita is the, uh, the nights of the lunar quarters, the full moon, the, the new moon, and the two half moons. And the Buddha, uh, in the Buddha's time, these were the, the holy days or the observance days for all the different religious groups that everyone would have some kind of religious observance on those days. And he'd been encouraged to, to establish some sort of Sabbath observance for his, his disciples. And, and so then he, he considered, well, what would be a good thing to do what would, for the lay community? What would be a good way of, of having a holy day? So then he thought, all their lives the enlightened ones uh, naturally refrain from taking the life of, of other living beings. Wouldn't it be good for the lay community to, for this one day, to consciously, deliberately abstain from the taking of life of other beings? Thus they will live as the enlightened ones do. And then, secondly, you know, um, uh, all their lives the enlightened ones refrain from taking that which is not given. Um, wouldn't it be good for the lay community for, for this one day to abstain from taking what is not given, therefore they will live as the enlightened ones do. And the third precept, all their lives, the enlightened ones abstain from any kind of, of sexual activity. Um, 
wouldn't it be good for the lay community for this, for this uh, one day of the week to live like the enlightened ones do and to also abstain from sexual activity and so forth through the whole of the eight precepts. <coughs> so what that means is that um, rather than thinking of these, these codes, the, the natural precepts and the renunciant ones together, the, all the eight, as being like an imposition from the outside, as you have in like, the Judeo-Christian model of the commandments, what he's saying is that this is the disposition of the, f of the pure heart, of the freed mind. When the mind is, in its, is completely awake and liberated uh, in our best moments, this is what we are, dis uh, the, the liberated heart is disposed naturally in this way. This is, this is how uh, uh, it inclines itself so that when we're truly awake, it's, it's physically impossible to harm or to deliberately take the life of another being. You know, your hand can't make the, the move to, to harm another being. It's impossible to tell, to tell a lie or to, to, to speak coarsely to another. The tongue w can't form the words. Um, so that, that the, um, rather than, than uh, seeing the eight precepts as some kind of imposition from outside making me do what, or making me stop doing what I really want to do, or what would be good to do, but I'll go without and kind of you know, grip my teeth and bear it, because there's some virtue in going without. It's like, no, 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 it's not. It's like, in our, in our heart of hearts, in our deepest place, this is how the heart longs t to be, or, or that, say, it mirrors the, the unconditioned mind, you know, the, uh, the, the pure heart, the unconditioned heart, uh, is incapable of, of, of violence, is incapable of of dishonesty is incapable of indulgence. It just doesn't is not drawn towards seeking entertainment or or distraction. Is not drawn towards indulgence. So we can explore this a bit more in the question time. But uh, just to pick up the four kind of renunciate um, precepts and talk about them a little bit before I finish. Um, I was uh, actually a story came to mind. Um, as we were sitting and I was musing on this theme um, of, of a very well-known Buddhist scholar who shall remain nameless for the time being <laughs> who was, uh, um, went to visit a great uh, Chinese Chan master who had a monastery in, uh, in San Francisco uh, Venerable Master Xuanhua um, who was the, uh, the abbot of Gold Mountain Monastery and City of 10,000 Buddhas and they're, they're quite close friends of ours and way back when, in sometime in the 70s, this, this eminent Buddhist scholar went to go and visit Master Hua as this famous enlightened Chan master and so uh, he had a number of questions that he wanted to ask about the Avatamsaka Sutra and the Vimalakirti Sutra and certain you know, subtle aspects of teachings on, on Buddha nature and um, so he came, kind of introduced himself and started chatting with a, and he's a very voluble uh, erudite scholar so he um, put out these questions and had these sort of, what he, I guess he assumed that these would be sort of interesting philosophical uh, conundrums that this, um, this great child master would be able to unravel them and, and give him some kind of useful <coughs> teachings to, to solve these knotty philosophical questions and so he, he put this to, he, he asked um, some of his questions and then the master kind of looked at him and said, you're kind of overweight, aren't you? 
Why do you eat so much? But, you know, uh, yes. Well, well, actually, my question was more about, you know, the nature of Buddha mind and its relationship to the, you know, the Buddha lands and, and, the, and the qualities of enlightenment. He says, do you ever look at other men's wives? You're a married man, aren't you? How many kids you got? Uh, well, four children. Do you ever look at women and, and feel sexual desire for them? <laughs> so how much do you sleep at night? Do you ever lie in in the morning? What time do you get up in the morning? <laughs> so this wasn't what the great scholar was prepared for. But uh, the... Uh, the point of the, the master was that I'm not interested in talking about Buddha lands and the nature of, of the enlightened mind. You know, let's let's get down to realities. You know, let's talk about about food, about sex, about sleep. You know, where are you at in your own life? How do you live, professor? <laughs> <laughs> so that he uh, he was giving him a teaching. You know, that, okay, let, if we want to talk about Buddha mind, let's kind of get, get to the reality of, of, of where we're at. And so, uh, the, um, I found that kind of amazing and uh, wonderful teaching because it's like something in us loves to theorize and to sort of brush all those, you know, the, the kind of um, our, our favorite little... Uh, uh, addictions, <laughs> p obsessions and, and uh, habits, put that all aside while we, we, we engage ourselves in this wonderful, high-minded, excellent, superior, ultimate realities. And it's like saying, well, let's talk about students. Yeah, let's talk about that, shall we? <laughs> you know, it's not often that when someone asks you about, you know, What's the nature of the enlightened mind? You say, what time did you get up this morning? <laughs> you know, it's kind of pointed, but you know, being a Zen master, you can ask those kind of things. <laughs> but it was the kindest kind of teaching to give because it pointed right at that. So these, the teachings, uh, the renunciant teachings, um, are, say, pointing at that, you know, these, these elements about, about sex, about food, about sleep, um, about entertainment, beautification, and adornment. And that what it's, what it's pointing at is seeing where we are um, caught up, where our habits lie, or how habituated, how addicted we are to a certain uh, degree of, of uh, say, nurturing or, or feeding those particular areas of our life. And that if we, uh, if we look at that, and if we at least occasionally challenge that or, or de decline to go along, with those impulses, uh, how much freer that makes us when, uh, when we, uh, are at least occasionally, are not so fussy about exactly what we eat, but just say, what would you like? And you say, oh, whatever. I mean, I, living in California, <laughs> the concept of saying whatever to a choice of, uh, of diet is <laughs> seriously anathematical. <laughs> <laughs> so people say, well, what do you, because when, when, as, as monastics, you know, it's our practice to, to never choose what, we're, what we eat. We just receive what we're given. And uh, con uh, training, uh, training ourselves to be content with that. So some people say, well, what would you really like? I mean, you know, really, what would you like? I mean, you can tell me, you know. <laughs> I won't pass it on. I say, no, no, wh whatever. It's like, 
<laughs> and sometimes just, you know, that they get, people actually get so upset <laughs> and distraught because they can't, there's no place in them that could really believe that you actually don't care. <laughs> that you end up saying, oh, just, you know, cheese omelette. Or <laughs> <laughs> because, not because that's particularly what you want, but just so that they'll stop being so fretful. But um, that the, the encouragement towards um, simplicity of eating, only eating in one part of the day, regarding food as something which is just fuel for the body that helps us to, to live for another day to, to help develop uh, the basis for uh, realizing the truth. To be able to, to lay aside the, the sexual urges to not be uh, just relating to other human beings or, or being related to by other human beings in terms of you know, am I attractive, are they attractive, is this one interesting, is that one interesting uh, to be able to, to just leave that aside and say okay at least today I'm not interested or at least having the, the intention to not be interested and to not, or to not be available or to, to just lay aside that and the monastery uh, endeavors to be a, a zone of that kind of simplicity where you know, people can relate to each other as, as sisters and brothers rather than just feeding the, the, the kind of uh, the habit coaxed by society of always trying to um, encourage attractiveness or, or appeal or to be kind of interesting or appealing or the I mean, I'm not saying everyone here is a sort of sexual obsessive but <laughs> There, there's, a, uh, there's just a, a chemistry that the culture encourages, a sort of flirtatious quality that, that you know, all of us can easily experience. And just having to deal with that, being on the, either produc the production end or the reception end, <laughs> it's really burdensome. And to just be able to say, here that doesn't happen, or today that doesn't happen. Today I just check out come on a retreat, go visit a monastery, or just make the resolution for a day, you know, I don't, I'm not in the game today. <laughs> just for the sake of simplicity. Similarly for the sake of eating, oh, it's midday, okay, nothing till dawn, fine. Whatever I'm given is fine. Whatever arrives is fine. Then with uh, entertainment, beautification and adornment, just that sense of finding that in us which, which does not need to be distracted. That we do, we're content with, with just what is. We're not needing to feed the senses to make ourselves satisfied. We're just being, uh, being ready to be with what is. And then uh, the way I like to think about the eighth precept is when you shut off all the other seven doorways of, of burning our energy, food, sex, uh, entertainment, uh, every other kind of distraction, then when everything else is shut down, at least we can sleep. <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> get away from our boredom or our mind or the endless chattering. At least we can just kind of knock ourselves out. It's like, no, 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 that door's closed as well. So, so that what it does is the point of the eight precepts is that it leaves one door open, which is a doorway of, of awareness, of mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya. But that's the door that's left open. But that's the, and that, the reason so that we are consciously shutting those other doors is so that 
we remember there is this great door that's right there, smack in the center, that we keep missing. The, the door that, that is actually going to lead to, to satisfaction, to, uh, to liberation, to, to freedom. So that these practices, or the, the style of renunciation, it's really trying to lead us to um, the way that it's not, as I'm saying, a kind of put-down of the sense world. It's not a put-down of, of, of beauty or, or sexuality or the experience of the senses. It's not condemning that, but it's just saying when we learn to be, to find that quality of our heart which is independent from all of that, then we can experience real bliss, real delight, real satisfaction. The, um, the essence of it is really this. So, there's a, just as a final word, um, the, which sort of underscores this. And this is apocryphal. And my, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, was, was famous for quoting things from the suttas that it's very, very hard to find. <laughs> In the actual canon. So, he wasn't a big-time scholar, but... Uh, so exactly where this came from, I'm not sure, but he, I, heard, I heard him tell this story a few times. And it recounts this incident where the, the Buddha is sitting with Ananda, and uh, uh, they're, they're having their meal. They're, 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 as after their arms around, they're eating together. And uh, Ananda is, has been um, making this observation about the equanimity of the Buddha, and saying, uh, and it was delicious food that they were they were eating. That the uh, I think the king had come and uh, had offered a, a meal that day. And Ananda is saying, um, "How wonderful! How amazing is the Tathagata? Because even such delicious food as this, it, you know, it, such is the equanimity of the Tathagata that he would um, certainly that the Tathagata would taste it, uh, you know, uh, as if it was uh, would be so equanimous it would be as if." It, uh, it, uh, all of these delicious foods just tasted like water or like air. That uh, the Tathagata's mind is so detached and so equanimous that you know, none of these these flavors have you know, any impact on that on that serenity, that equanimity. Um, and it would, and certainly, you know, all of these tastes would have no effect. And the Tathagata says, on the contrary, Ananda. And he says, and he takes a piece of food out of his mouth that he's been chewing. He says, and he gives it to Ananda and says, taste this, Ananda, and you will experience the sense of taste as the Tathagata experiences it. <laughs> and so then, Ananda takes this piece of food and puts it in his mouth, and rather than it tasting like, like water and having no, n sort of no taste whatsoever, there's this explosion of flavor, and it's like... Wow! And so Ananda is like completely gobsmacked by this, this experience. <laughs> it's like, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, Lord, how intense that the, uh, the, uh, and, and delicious and extraordinary the, the sense of, uh, of, uh, of taste is in the Tathagata. Um, never have I ever tasted anything as, uh, as extraordinarily blissful and, and delicious as, as this. And so, even so, Ananda, you should have known that one of the one of the characteristics of the Tathagata is to have an extremely long tongue and a very acute sense of taste. And and also, Ananda, you should bear in mind that even though the Tathagata experiences uh, the, uh, the 
the sense of taste with such intensity and, and experiences deliciousness to such a high degree, even so, his heart is, uh, is uh, unconfused by that blissful experience. So that uh, it's, uh, the renunciation is uh, uh, kind of borne out, kind of, or the spirit of what I'm saying is borne out in that even when the experience is something very, very pleasant, like this beautiful room and it's got lovely surroundings, even when it's something extraordinarily pleasant and nice, that the point is not that, that it's not beautiful, but that the, the, um, the, the aim of the practice is to find that place in our heart which can receive the pleasant or the painful, the beautiful or the ugly. And in, there is a, a, a quality of, of total uh, ease and serenity with it. And in fact, that serenity enables us to appreciate it more completely. That's a, an example I often give is, speaking of taste, when we do eat something that's incredibly delicious, our absolutely, absolutely favorite thing. So think for a moment, what is your absolutely favorite dish? And have you ever had the experience of, of meeting a plate full of that? And think, oh wow, this is great, this is so wonderful, and then suddenly, where did it go? What happened? We were so busy exalting, you know, exalting in its wonderful, uh, and ex exotic and fantastic nature, we inhaled it. And suddenly it's gone, we're staring at the empty plate, like, oh. Oh, well, I better have some more, because I missed the first lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, the mind is so caught up in, in, in getting excited about it, we actually miss it. But when there's, that, when there's the true renunciation, when we've really renounced and let go of it, then we're actually there for every mouthful. And, and, every, and, and it's, it's uh, the quality of full attention and non-complication, non-projection around it that enables us to taste the present moment, whether it's beautiful, ugly, delicious, or, or bitter. We're able to be with it completely, and there's a, <coughs> it becomes a cause for liberation. So, I will finish my piece there.